I want to say to you what I've already said. Christ is risen. He is risen in me. Hallelujah. Now I've got a question for you. What does that mean? What does it mean for us today to say Christ is risen? What does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with our life? What does it have to do with your job? Students, what does the resurrection of Christ mean for you as a student in English, in history, in biology? How does it matter? Parents, what does it mean? Christ is risen for you as a parent, for your children, for all of us. What does this mean for our friendships? What does it mean for the houses we live in? What does it mean for our neighbors? For those of us who've retired, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with retirement? For the season of Easter, which lasts 50 days from last Sunday, for this entire season, we're going to focus on this question. What does Jesus' resurrection have to do with life here and now in this world? Or to put it more bluntly, what is salvation for? Many of us who've grown up in Christianity, we've heard quite a bit about what salvation is against. But what is Christianity actually for? Now, to get us started... I want to tell you about a scene near the end of J.R.R. Tolkien's novel, The Lord of the Rings. The final novel is titled, The Return of the King. Sam, the hobbit, he awakens on an Easter-like day. His dreams have come true. Against all odds, he and Frodo succeeded in destroying the ring. The evil ring. Sauron and the forces of Mordor have been defeated. And now he awakes in the safekeeping of good King Aragon. In the presence of the wizard Gandalf. Now he thought Gandalf was dead. He can't believe all of this stuff has happened. He, he had given Gandalf up for death. And he wakes up. And as he wakes, there's kind, gentle, wise Alive Gandalf. And he says this. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? Listen to Tolkien's words. But Sam lay back. He stared with open mouth. Look at, look at Zeke right now. You, you were doing it just like that. <laughs> Sam lay back and stared with open mouth. And for a moment. Between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? This question, wow. Isn't that a remarkable way to think about sad stuff? Is everything sad going to come untrue? I thought I was dead. That's not true. I thought you were dead. That's not true. Is everything going to come untrue that's sad? 
Sam's question, it's big. It's much bigger than simply, will my story have a happy ending? He's asking about the story of the whole world. Is everything sad? Everything in the whole wide world that's sad going to come untrue? And the answer in Tolkien's remarkably imaginative Middle Earth, the answer is yes. Evil has been defeated. The, The king has returned. And so everything sad is going to come untrue. Now this is a marvelous, imaginative portrayal of Easter. That first Easter morning, 2,000 years ago, that was the turning point in history. The first day of spring for all creation. That's why I love the art on the front of worship guide. Spring is cutting through this medium density fiberglass, right? This fiberboard. Spring is cutting through. And like the defeat of Sauron the Lord of, in the Lord of the Rings, the resurrection of Jesus means that God has won. Sin, death, and the devil have been defeated. On that first Easter morning, the whole world awakened to a new and unexpected horizon. Jesus had risen from the dead, so the ice and snow of our eternal winter of death was finally beginning to thaw. Because God was fulfilling the ancient promises to make all things new. To not let go of his world. To refuse to relinquish it to sin and the devil. And all of the imposters that twist it out of shape. Now, a lesser author would have finished the great trilogy on that scene. Would that be a great way to end a book? Is everything sad going to come untrue? But Tolkien's no normal author. Tolkien, he does something else. You see, while the great enemy has been defeated, and this does mean that everything sad will come untrue, there is still work to do. In fact, there's a hundred pages left. A hundred pages where Sam and the other hobbits go to work bringing order to the kingdom, bringing truth and beauty and justice into Middle Earth. Whoa, that would have been bad. (laughs) Dropping my notes. Right, Ed? (laughs) Now, a little earlier, Fran read to us. I love when Fran reads. You know she believes it. Fran read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In this great chapter, the longest section in all of the Bible dealing with resurrection. In this great chapter on the resurrection, the Apostle Paul, he's meditating on Easter. On Easter as the guarantee that everything sad will come untrue. And then at the very end of his chapter... Paul concludes his exploration of the resurrection by saying this. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Interesting. Paul ends his meditation on the resurrection of Jesus with an emphasis on work, on labor. He ends his meditation on on the resurrection of Jesus by saying, 
Look, work is hard. It's frustrating. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Because of the resurrection, your job, your vocation, your work is caught up in the Lord. He's not talking about a different kind of work. He's talking about what happens to your job, your vocation, parenting, grandparenting, school, law, politics, building, business. When he says your work, he's not saying your spiritual work. He's saying, no, now your work is caught up in the spirit's activity. Therefore, your normal, ordinary labors are spiritual labors. Because of the resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in hope. Know that even your difficult job is not in vain. Now. We're honing in on the purpose of Christianity, the purpose of our salvation. Jesus is the king, so there's work to do. Not Jesus is the king, so you get to fly off into some pie-in-the-sky place. Just sit back and push through this veil of tears. No, Jesus is king, therefore we have work to do. But how do we do that work? How do we do our labor in the Lord? This is where things get tricky. This is where things get confusing. See, 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 too often when Christians look at this world, the brokenness of our world is so deep, so scary, so dangerous. If we forget That the victory of the cross and the resurrection is for every square inch of this world. If we lose our grip, our imaginative grip on the comprehensiveness of Christ's victory. Then we are susceptible to two devastating temptations. Number one, the temptation of fear. And number two, the temptation of urgency. And when a Christian yields to the twin temptations of fear and urgency, the results are never good. They play themselves out often in one of three ways. Pick your poison. First of all, sometimes when we live in a posture of fear and urgency... Sometimes this creates in us a desire to hide from the broken, scary, dangerous world. And we do this through fortification. Fortification, one of the ways we live out of fear and urgency. We build up walls. We create alternative Christian cultures and economies within these walls. We just wait for Christ to return any minute now. And in the meantime, let's create our own music and our own movies and schools and neighborhoods and clothing before we get contaminated by this dangerous, scary, broken world. And in this response, we fortify. We shut the world out. They won't listen to us. Who needs them? Fortification. A second way people tend to operate out of fear and urgency. A second way we try to align ourselves with God, that's good. But when that gets contaminated by fear and urgency, a second way this works out is when we try to conquer the world. 
So, fortification, first option. Second option, domination. Let's take back our government and our schools and our media and our neighborhoods. You see how this is the opposite move, right? Instead of fortifying and building our own, let's charge into the world and take over. Both motivated by the same thing, fear and urgency. Let's take back our schools, our media, our neighborhoods, and let's do it quickly before any more damage can be done to our nation. They've been oppressing us for too long. Let's get the country back on track because we know what's best for everybody else. Third option. When you're contaminated by fear and urgency and you want to align yourself with the work of God in this world. A third option is accommodation. We're so tired Of other Christians having this us versus them mentality. Let's not allow another day to go by. In which our faith is offensive to people. Why can't today be the day. That we begin afresh. By simply loving everyone and getting along. If God is making everything sad be untrue. Then why should we be offensive? Now the problem with all three of these approaches is that they, they fail to attend sufficiently to the sweep of Scripture. They fail to read the Bible as a single, sprawling, capacious narrative. Instead, they're cherry-picking verses out of the Bible. They're, they're de-narrativizing the Bible. They're taking the Bible and reading it like an encyclopedia instead of a novel, a story. In other words, instead of allowing the sweep of the Bible's claim about reality to control the imagination, they're picking little pieces of the Bible and slotting them in. But when we read the Bible as a single cohesive narrative, a single story that climaxes in Jesus Christ, when we read the Bible this way, we can see an entirely different posture, an entirely different way of thinking about ourselves in relation to the world, a way that is not at all contaminated by fear or urgency. Now, remember our question. It's this. What is Christianity for? We've seen that Christ is risen, so new creation has begun. And that God calls us to join him in his work of new creation. Of healing and restoring the world. Of bringing truth and beauty and justice and reconciliation to this world. But how? How do we do that? Not by fortification. Not by domination. Not by accommodation. How do we do that? What's the alternative? Well, the alternative is when you read the Bible as a single sweeping story that climaxes in Jesus Christ. When you learn to see that at the heart of the Bible is this, God dealing with evil. When you learn to read the Bible that way, then suddenly something else breaks out. Now, let me back up. The story of the Bible goes like this. Reality as we know it is the result of a creator God bringing into being a world that is other than himself but is filled with his glory. And part of this creation is a creature, a special creature. 
a creature made in the image of the creator. Talking about humans. And humans were made in the image of God. And our purpose is to bring the creator's wise and loving care to bear upon his world. But in an act of tragic irony, the creature, humans, have pushed against this vocation, this job, this purpose. And as a result, the entire creation is cast into a state of exile. That's the key. Exile. Right? Adam and Eve in the garden, sin, and what happens? Suddenly, exile between humans and the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles, it's going to work against you. Exile between Adam and Eve. She did it. He did it. Exile between Adam and Eve and God. Hiding from God. Suddenly, as a result of the mutiny, exile is the dominant note. Of reality. Exile. Dislocation. Homeless. Placeless. Fractured relationships. On every level. Each of us with ourselves. With others. With God. With creation. Now the creator solved the problem. The problem of exile. How? How did the creator solve the problem? Well, in a way that caught everybody off guard. Who would have thunk this story up? Who would have ever imagined that God himself is a trinity? A trinity of persons that God himself sent the second member of the trinity, Jesus, into the creation. And he willingly chose to take exile upon himself. Who would have solved it that way? The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, he left his home with the Father. He volunteered into exile in order to live among us in our broken world. And wherever he went, how did he act as an exile? Wherever he went, he welcomed in refugees, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, zealots and Pharisees, tax collectors and prostitutes. But he didn't stop there. On Good Friday, he died. The ultimate yielding to exile. He took death all the way in. He died. Why did he die? For the life of the world. Taking our sins upon himself and experiencing full and complete alienation from God. Those of you who know the story, what is that dark moment right on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is God himself fractured in himself. Here is God himself taking full on exile. Then on Easter, God vindicated the son. By bringing him back from dead and crowning him king. Now King Jesus is moving into all of the world through his spirit, recovering the world from exile. Now he's moving into the world, delivering all of creation from exile. Now, when we learn to look at the world through this lens... The lens of the story of the Bible. When we learn to look at the world through this framework, this full and complex and beautiful story, there are enormous resources for overcoming fear and urgency. 
for avoiding fortification, domination, and accommodation. You see, on the one hand, as Christians, our spiritual exile is over. Because of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, we are reconciled to God. We're adopted into his family. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us wherever we go. So we're no longer exiled from the Father. I will never leave you or forsake you. Christ was forsaken from God so that you don't ever again have to experience God forsakenness. Never again alone. Now, there's another side to this story. Even though our spiritual exile is over, we still live in a broken world. Temptation, sin, crime, disease, death. These are constant realities. So there's a fundamental tension that Christians experience. On the one hand, we're citizens of God's kingdom. On the other hand, we live as exiles in the fallen kingdom of man. And this... You see, we live at a crossroads. And it's life at this crossroads. It's this tension that makes us feel so unsettled. As citizens of God's kingdom who live in the fallen kingdom of man, we are out of place and we feel it in our bones. You go out into a hostile work environment. You go out into a family that doesn't get you. You go out with brokenness still inside of you. And you feel in your bones you're not yet home. And that tension is where our propensity for fear and urgency comes from. Fear and urgency. It's an understandable result of living at the crossroads of two kingdoms. And until God makes all things new, we won't ever feel completely at home. But this is the key. Once we can look at the tension through the lens of exile, once we get this way of looking at ourselves in this world, once we embrace exile as the dynamic, it opens up a better way of aligning our lives with the work of Christ. Better than fortification, domination, Or accommodation. You see what we need to be asking is. How do exiles live well? How do we live as exiles? As expatriates. For the life of the world. As loyal subjects of the king. Now that brings us. To the great passage of scripture. Jillian read to us. If you have your Bible. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. Here we see God's threefold instruction to exiles for how to live in the state of exile. So now I'm going to move out of analysis. The answer to the problem is to learn to look at our relationship to the world as as exiles. Now I'm going to offer from Jeremiah 29 three instructions God gives to the Israelites when they were exiles for how we should learn to live in this world as exiles. Number one, stewardship. Stewardship. Listen again to Jeremiah 29 verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. In other words, what I'm about to say, this comes from God. Now, as Christians, we believe that. To all the exiles, you should say, that's me. 
That's how it is in my family. That's how it is at JMU. That's how it is in my work. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. That's remarkable, isn't it? That God would send us into exile? But isn't that a patterning of the son? Sent into exile? It's the same narrative movement. Father sending us into exile. Whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now what's his instructions? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. So here is God through Jeremiah telling the Jewish exiles living in Babylon how to live. And what is it that they're to do? Well, he tells them, settle down, build houses, plant gardens, and eat their produce. So the first instruction is this. As loyal subjects of King Jesus who are living in exiles, we must be good stewards of whatever God has put under our care. Now, for some of us, this means literally owning real estate and growing food. We started putting our garden in yesterday. It's a very natural Easter move, isn't it? But for all of us, it means taking stock of whatever resources God has given us in terms of relationships, possessions, education, Houses, experiences, jobs, opportunities. You've got to look at everything in your life as something you are supposed to steward. Steward your experiences, your relationships, your possessions, your intellect, your cleverness, your, your, your wit. Steward your Job, your home, all of these things. Steward it in such a way that whatever God has entrusted into your care will flourish and bear fruit. Is your home bearing fruit? Are your relationships bearing fruit? Your experiences, good and bad, steward them so that they bear fruit. You must care For what God has given you. That's the first instruction of God to exiles. Isn't the natural propensity of exiles to be afraid? To be fearful? To long for the return from exile? To be of so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good? The first instruction is to care for whatever God has given you. And this brings us to the second element of God's instructions to exile. Number two, patience. Patience. Put down roots. Resist the hypermobility of our culture. Put down roots right where you are as exiles, as expatriates. It takes patience to live for the life of the world as loyal subjects of the king. In God's instructions to the exiles, we see that to, that to overcome the temptation of urgency, we must meet it with the habit of patience. You see, prior to the Babylonian exile, there were false prophets in Jerusalem who promised Israel prosperity. God would never send you into exile. 
He, he gave, he's got you here. You are secure. You will prosper. Then Babylon came in, kicked their teeth in, hauled them off as exiles. So these same prophets, you know what they said? Not to worry. You'll be back in two years. To which God said, baloney. Give or take a few words. Jeremiah 29, verses 8 through 9. Listen to these words again. Do not listen to them. They're lying. You will not be in Babylon for two years. Seventy more years. In other words, longer than any of you will live. What is 70 years to the 40-year-old? What is 70 years to the person in the prime of their career when they got hauled off as as an exile? It's, you're never going back. 70 years. Now, a little bit later on, Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 32, Jeremiah purchases a piece of property back in Jerusalem and buries the deed. The deed to the land, knowing that he would never live to enjoy ownership of it. It would only be in the lifetime of his grandchildren that his family would begin to benefit from this property. What is he doing? The point is, he's being patient. He's playing the long game. This is a long-term approach. And it is very, it's a very different way of thinking than the urgency of Christian activism. One of the greatest problems many Christians have today is the temptation to urgency. An entirely different approach is the long game. Settle down. Plant. You know the saying, if you want potatoes for dinner, you can't plant them yesterday. Potatoes take a long time to grow. Play the long game. Settle down. Invest. Build. Grow. Tend. Maintain. And expand so that whatever God has entrusted into your care will flourish and bear fruit. We all know how to handle a short-term assignment to some unpleasant place. Just take your necessities, get in and get out. But everything changes when the assignment is long-term. You begin to make friends and buy furniture. Hang pictures on the wall in order to make a home there. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Now, can't you see how patient, long-term approaches, how this has the advantage of taking the weight of the world off your shoulders? It's not going to be solved in your lifetime. It takes the weight off. Now, guess where the weight is? Back where it belongs. The responsibility of King Jesus. We confidently believe that he is making everything come untrue. Indeed, look at what he's already done. Hospitals and schools and the abolition of the slave trade and protection for women and children and so many other advances that have come into this world since that first Easter morning. Now, this patient, long-term approach is a much more realistic way of envisioning how God is making everything sad come untrue. It's happening, but it happens in fits and starts. Often, two steps forward, one step back. And not only does this making all sad come untrue, not only does it happen in fits and starts, it always comes at a cost. Didn't Jesus say everybody has to take up their own cross? In other words, my cross is not the end of crosses. It's no coincidence that in most every case, whenever and wherever real change has taken place, 
Christians have suffered. Whether through persecution or through people saying no to their wonderlust, refusing to choose a better house, a better job, a better spouse, but putting roots down. Stay. The advances of God's kingdom never come through mobility. If mobility had been key to the kingdom, God would not have restricted us with bodies. I'm not saying mobility is terrible. I'm just saying it needs to be relocated. The advances of God's kingdom never come easy. Stop trying to change the world overnight. Stop thinking this whole thing depends on you. Seek obscurity. Seek obscurity. Let the patient, long-term approach become ingrained in your head and in your heart and in your imagination. Too, far too many churches view our Father's world with such pessimism and despair. I want incarnation to be known as a community of optimism. And hope for what God is doing now and for what he will continue to do for generations. If you ever meet a church that has anything less than a hundred year plan, run the other way. Play the long game. Plant oak trees. Play the long game. And may the seeds we plant today at incarnation bear fruit in the lives of our children's children. So we embrace exile. And once we do, once we begin to envision ourselves as expatriates, we can begin to see more clearly how the Bible instructs us to live our life for the world as loyal subjects of the king. Number one, through stewardship. And number two, through patience. And finally, number three, through love. Through love. By the way, this is just a reworking of faith, hope, and love. We are faithful with the stuff God has given us. We live the long game of hope and we act in love. You see, exiles overcome urgency with patience and we overcome fear with love. I don't know why King Jesus is taking so long to complete his work of making everything sad be untrue. But there's one clear benefit of his patience. God's grace is still available to everyone who is estranged from him. And instead of being afraid of unbelievers, we can love them. Because we know what it's like to be exiles. Having lived as aliens and strangers in this world, we have enough of a taste of exile to know what it's like to not have Jesus. We're able to love because we can empathize with people who are currently experiencing spiritual exile from God. Psalm 68.6 says God sets the lonely in families. Having experienced the hospitality of the gospel ourselves, we can extend that hospitality to everyone for the life of the world. In Babylon, the Jewish exiles who received Jeremiah's letter had to learn how to overcome fear and begin to love The people who had raped and murdered and pillaged their home country. Can you imagine? Think about this. When God said build houses, who did they have to go buy materials from? 
Who did they have to go and ask? How do you build a house in this environment, in this landscape with the resources that are here? None of the resources I grew up using to build houses are available. Who did they have to ask advice from when they planted their gardens? You know what I did last week? I, I, I talked with Stephen and Leah Napotnik and said, what crops do you plant in Virginia at this time of the year? Because in Louisiana, where all of my people are from and where all of the gardening I know comes from, the, Louisiana's a little different than Virginia. It's, it's hot, for one. Like all of the year, but two days. Think about how God's instructions to them meant they had to leave their refugee camp and go and talk with the Babylonians down at the Babylonians down at the public market, at the farmers co-op, at the builders co-op. They needed advice and supplies from the locals, and it's the same for us. We simply cannot do 1 Corinthians 15:58. What does it say? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We can't do this without our neighbors, whether they believe in God or not. We can't do this without engaging with people of every faith and lifestyle and persuasion under the sun. They know about building houses and planting gardens in this place. So we posture ourselves with humility and enter into relationships with them. But don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we use people. No, 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 no. Too often, too many churches have the mindset of using the city to support the church. Come, city of Harrisonburg, buy from our bake sale because we're a worthy cause. Give us a break on the building codes. Let us have this or that for free. That's not the way to go about it. Because we love our neighbors, our mindset should be the opposite. Instead of using the city to benefit the church, we've got to use the church to benefit the city. Who are we? We are gospel-centered We're a gospel-centered Anglican church serving Harrisonburg, serving the city, serving our neighborhoods. What's our mission? To love God and serve our city. That is our job. Rather than existing for the life of ourselves, we exist for the life of the world. But the world's a scary and dangerous place. How do we overcome our fear of the world? Well, one of my jobs as a dad in my family is to teach my kids how to take risk. Parents, are you raising risk-averse children? Our job is to teach our children how to take risk. I I have to have the tough conversation with the scary neighbor so that my children can learn how to have courageous conversations. I have to ride my, mount, my mountain bike down the scary trail to show my children how to do it. It's a similar way. That's what Jesus has done for us. Everything sad is becoming untrue because Jesus moved out in risk. He pioneered missionary risk-taking, pitching his tent in a scary place for the life of the world. He made a safe path for us to follow. Jesus pioneered taking up his cross for the life of the world so that we can take up our own crosses and follow him into risky relationships, risky places because of the vindication of Easter. Because Jesus rose from the dead, even if we die, we will rise too. So whatever the risk... Our future is certain. Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit upon us so that we can have the courage to live for the life of the world. So what is salvation actually for? It's this. We're a part 
of God's grand plan making everything in our world that is sad come untrue. Christ is risen. No more urgency, only patience. Christ is risen. No more fear, only love. As we join the risen Jesus Christ in the work of establishing the kingdom come. So listen again to the final sentence of Paul's amazing meditation on the resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, because of the certainty of Jesus' resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor, that's school teachers. School teaching was once a noble profession. It's not anymore. I haven't talked to a school teacher in about 10 years who likes their job. No child left behind. Core standards. Every school teacher I talk to, they feel like everything is against them. And it's taken their joy. Don't quit. Find wisdom for living as an exile teacher. Talk to Aaron Cook and Scott Hansen for what it's like to work at a job where you continually lose. School teachers, you had a pass for about 50 years. Now you're just a missionary like the rest of us. So you've got to develop strengths you never had to develop before. Moms, parents, we've lost homemaking as a skill and an art. We don't know how to raise children who are civilized anymore. We've got to rediscover all that wisdom. Hard work, your labor, fill in your job, is not in vain because of the resurrection.